This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're very fortunate to be joined by Jose Manuel Barroso, who is the chairman of Goldman Sachs International. Jose Manuel also had an extraordinary career in politics as foreign minister of Portugal, then prime minister of Portugal, and president of the European Commission. Jose Manuel, it's great to have you with us today. It's my pleasure. You've now spent about a year here at the firm, and it's been a very interesting year. We've seen dramatic elections in Europe and the United States, a lot of posturing around nuclear weapons, natural disasters, terror attacks, and throughout it all, steadily rising asset prices. When you try to find the narrative arc and consistency in all of that, where do you start? The common element to unite all those elements that you have presented is globalization. The world is going through a very complex, dynamic process of globalization. There is, at the same time, flux and friction. The flux of increased trade, investment, international exchanges at all levels, including people, movements of people, but also travel, cultural exchanges. And at the same time, there is resistance, resistance that can sometimes take the form of terrorism, people who don't like open societies or open economies, or nationalism, or populism, or resistance also to the development of science itself. So we are living extremely exciting, but sometimes challenging and difficult times. I believe also, globally, markets are looking more to the trends than to the simple facts of day-to-day. Because if you look at some of the worries, they are very serious. But if you look globally, strategically, in fact, the world is better today than it was, let's say, 20 or 50 years before. Looking at more all people out of poverty, exactly rising wealth, well, child mortality, yeah. life expectancy. We are beating mm-hmm. all records, including the worst countries in the world. Of course, I'm not following the trap of complacency. I think there are many, many issues that are serious and dramatic all over the world and the wars. But look, all the wars we have today compared with the two great world wars of the 20th century in terms of casualties, they are relatively small. So... In fact, the trend, there is an interesting book from a former colleague of mine at Princeton, Angus Deaton, The Great Escape, and precisely he speaks about the great escape to humanity. He's been living from hunger and from disease. So we are better off strategically, but there is, of course, a great concern of, let's say, the man in the street, the man or woman in the street, because he feels that he or she is not in control, that there are transnational forces, including, by the way, international finance, that he or she barely understands. And so there is a kind of anxiety that sometimes is used by those who want to fuel populistic or extremist sentiments. You've been a big champion of globalization, the idea that interconnected, interdependent cultures and markets are the way forward. But as you just said, that idea is under a lot of attack, under a lot of review, to put it mildly. As someone who's worked to foster better relationships, better connections between countries and societies, more harmony in the global community, what's the imperative now for people who believe in that path forward? First of all, to explain the issue rationally. I think it is possible to explain things and win hearts and minds of people on the issue. Because sometimes we left, those who believe in a more open world, in open societies, in open economies, we left initiative to the extremes. But we can win debate, I think. Secondly, of course, try to address the concerns that are legitimate of people that are feeling behind. Because there is growing inequality, not globally, but in some countries. We see growing inequality. 
And of course, when some people get richer, those who don't get rich, of course, they are frustrated. And there is a kind of resentment. And also in the shifting of international relations, some countries that were before very important powers when they are no longer feeling they are, there is also the danger of some action or reaction. So that's why I think we have to address those concerns, trying to avoid, for instance, arrogance. Arrogance is always a form of stupidity. Avoiding to humiliate, we should not humiliate people. And we should understand and support those who are left behind. I think this is extremely important so that we build a more inclusive approach in the world. If I may make a reference to a phrase I've learned some time ago, my father loved mankind in general and he hated every individual in particular. So that's the issue about globalization. We have to think about mankind not in general, but about each person, a man, a woman or a child, and what we can do to improve their lives. You point out that the critics of globalization are getting something right, that something gets lost in these grand theories, and, and oftentimes it's the individual. What can we, at a firm like Goldman Sachs, which stands in many ways for globalization, international finance, and in some ways is the bogeyman for those who hate globalization, what can we do to address those criticisms? First of all, doing our business with integrity, Respecting the highest standards, I think that's extremely important. Of course, there is always a risk in such an organization like ours of some behavior that is not the most appropriate. In that case, we have to clearly distance ourselves from that. So I think it's extremely important the way we behave from a business point of view. Secondly, I think we are not, and we should not be seen as a political institution. We are a business, commercial institution. So I think we should avoid partisan intervention. That's not what people expect from a firm like Goldman Sachs. But at the same time, I think we have a global responsibility also. And so when there are very important issues that put in question our values, for instance, racism, xenophobia, extremism, I think it's only natural. And I would expect that Goldman Sachs has all firms that feel the responsibility of corporate social responsibility, I think they have the right, I would say, even the duty to intervene and take position. Moving to your home turf, after the Brexit vote last year, there was a lot of concern that the elections this year in 2017 would continue this populist trend. Where does Europe go from here? Obviously, those tensions are still there, but at least in some of the major countries, you're seeing sort of pro-European politicians continue to serve in power or win elections? Yes, look, I was living uh, all these crises in the European Commission, leading the European Commission, the European Union, and I remember very well that in many meetings I've participated in from the G8 or G7 after Russia was leaving the G8 to the G20. Sometimes we were <laughs> on the hot seat. We had to explain that the euro was not going to to break, that there will be European Union in the future, even for instance, Grexit. Uh, I remember most of my interlocutors were asking me how long it will take for Greece to leave the euro. And I was always very confident because I know about the resilience of the economic and monetary union about European. Of course, we had an important setback. It was Brexit. I think Britain is one of the most important countries in the world. So certainly it was not good for Europe that the referendum decided in favor of Brexit. Having said that, as you rightly mentioned, there was not a wave of populism or extremism or anti-Europe movements that many people were predicting or some of them were wishing. On the contrary, 
We have, for instance, France now the most pro-European president ever France had. And I think even Brexit is, for continental Europe, uh, working as a kind of a, a warning. People don't want instability. And countries that were sometimes critical of the opinion are now becoming more pro-Europe. So I think now the conditions are there, namely if we have a working relationship, which I hope it will materialize between France and Germany. This is not a sufficient condition, but it's a necessary, indispensable condition for the European Union to work. I think we are going to see some steps forward in the European integration, namely in terms of the economic and monetary union, in terms of a common approach to security, namely in terms of control of external border, also some issues in terms of defense. By the way, the American president is asking the Europeans to do more in terms of defense, which I think is a fair point. So we have to avoid the idea of a free rider. So the Europeans are going to do more in terms of defense, hopefully not out of NATO, but supporting also NATO. So I think we are going to see, as always, incremental steps. I don't believe we are going to have the United States of Europe in the foreseeable or the immediate future. There will not be a Philadelphia moment soon. But I also believe those who predicted and continue to predict a kind of disintegration of Europe are wrong. So it's going to be something in the middle, progress, incremental, but on a sustained path for a stronger European Union. So basically, I'm confident about the future of the European Union, not only economically, but also politically. So against the backdrop of that political stability this year, relative political stability in Europe, the economy's done pretty well. It's been pretty positive. There's good data on growth, also unemployment and manufacturing. So how would you characterize this stage of the Eurozone's recovery and what will you be watching as we look ahead? I think we are at the first stages of recovery, but it's not going to be a spectacular recovery. We are not emerging economies, so it's going to be moderate growth compared to the numbers or the figures of the less mature economies. Having said that, I think it's going to be sustained. Nevertheless, I will watch with attention the situation in Italy. While I believe there is progress, there are some issues that need to be addressed still. France, it's important to see how much the commitment of President Macron to reform translates into practical results. I, I hope it will. It's critically important for Europe to have a more self-confident and more modern reform-oriented France. I hope it will. It's also important to see that there is no divisions between, let's say, core Europe and some of new member states. I think we have to avoid some of these divisions. And sometimes we saw in debates about refugees that that could uh, happen. But basically, I see countries that have made big efforts, including so-called austerity policies. In fact, some of them are among the best performers now. Look at Ireland. It's, Ireland, it's, yeah. it's amazing. Or look even at Spain. They did not have the full bailout, but they had a bailout program for the banks. It's amazing. Or uh, Portugal was now upgraded. Even Greece is making a lot of progress, even if for political reasons that progress was postponed. So basically, it shows that it worked. It worked, of course, the European Union way. It's incremental by nature, but well, basically... A little I think, gradual. Yes. <laughs> yes, I spoke about this during the crisis, for instance, with President Obama, with many of our interlocutors, also globally, from the Chinese to the Japanese to, I mean, to, to Brazil. And some of them wanted us to do things like if we were a state. The European Union is not a country. We are 28 countries. So by definition, compromise, making consensus takes time and political capital and effort. But at the end of the day, and that is something that... I would like to share now, I'm no longer in official capacity, I'm not in a political position, so you may trust my sincerity. I'm speaking with full independence. It works. It's another way of working, 
more diverse, more complex, but it works. Throughout your career in politics, both in your native Portugal and then at the European Commission, you worked very hard for trade relationships that would bring countries closer together. The EU's made some additional strides of late on this front. But what do you make of this antipathy toward free trade? It's not just here in the United States, but widespread in many countries in Europe as well. I think it's wrong. I think basically trade has brought prosperity. Of course, it's true that during some time there are maybe some sectors that win more than others, and there are in the process of adjustment sometimes some sectors that appear as losers. But globally, our societies have gained immensely from trade. And so I think we have to pursue our efforts for trade opening, trade liberalization. Of course, Everybody says that, and it's true, free and fair trade. It's important to have competition. At the same time, it is important that we try to reach the highest standards, that there is not unfair competition. Just to give an example, child labor. I mean, it's morally not acceptable. So it's not just a question of economic opportunity. So it's, it's not acceptable. So I think we should, as much as possible, have the highest standards. And by the way, the European Union, its trade with third parties, tries to achieve this. I'm proud that during my two terms in the Commission, we have, since it was not possible to have the global so-called trade agreement, the DOA was not successful, we have decided to go bilaterally and we have concluded many important trade agreements and I see that there is now a new impulse to do it. To do it. That's certainly very good news. I think it's an advantage to our society because it creates prosperity, it creates more employment, it creates more opportunities for our economies. You've spent an enormous amount of time working on some very complicated multilateral, multinational agreements. And perhaps the most thorny of those issues has been climate change. And you played a big role as president of the European Commission in trying to forge a global cooperation. One of the most important agreements really over the last decade has been the Paris Accord on Climate Change. What role will Europe continue to play as there's been some tension around that accord and some dissent, particularly here in the United States, around the role that accord has played in combating climate change. I'm very proud that it was the commission I was leading that put forward the most ambitious program against climate change. It was in 2007, at a time when most of our partners were not really ready to engage. And afterwards, we had all the debate. There was the failed conference in Copenhagen. But afterwards, we had the Paris conference when most countries in the world accepted so I believe we should follow science, and science tells us clearly that there is a threat, an essential threat to our planet, that is climate change. Now, I think that battle we are going to win it. Of course, I would prefer the commitment in legal terms of all the countries, but we have two great allies in that fight or that struggle. It is precisely the public opinion and science. With those allies, we are going to win in that battle. And by the way, I also think that technology can help bring some of the solutions to the problem. But to have institutionalized agreement certainly will help those global efforts. I'm also very proud that today Goldman Sachs is one of the financial institutions that is doing more in terms of our programs for the environment, environmental friendly, green economy, also the fight against climate change. So we are, in fact, as Goldman Sachs, I've been seeing the, the figures of one of the most committed global companies in this area. And I think we should be proud of it because we are embracing a cause that is important not only for the young people of the world that are more sensible probably to this issue, but to mankind in general. 
You spent time as foreign minister of Portugal and also, again, at the European Union, working to help emerging economies get better connected with the rest of the global economy and lift themselves out of poverty. What are the most promising tools or initiatives you've seen that can help emerging economies really lift themselves up? One is trade. Precisely, that's one of the reasons why I think I'm for trade, because trade brings opportunities, brings employment. And of course, we have to think also that there are other people that deserve to have access to the benefits of the economy. It's not only us. So that's trade. It's a way of opening societies, and it's a way also of creating more opportunities. But there are institutional, there have been interesting developments. For instance, it was myself and President Sarkozy at that time, had the rotating presidency of the European Union that came here to the United States to speak with President Bush to suggest to him to organize the first G20. At that time, we only had the G8. So it was a way of engaging as a response to the financial crisis. Countries like China or India or Brazil or many others that were are already today very important emerging economies, extremely important, but were not in the first league of the economic decision globally. So once again, it's engaging, making them responsible stakeholders of the global economy and hopefully the global society. So I think if we do that, there is a pretty good chance that we can get it right. So it will certainly be good for the population of those countries. Some of them before were living in extreme poverty, but at the same time for creating more markets and also good for those of us that are in favor of open societies and open economies. Talk a little bit about the relationship between Europe and Asia, particularly with the U.S. pulling back a little bit, turning inward, sort of walking away from TPP and China sort of stepping up and emerging on the global stage. Asia, if you look at dynamics of the population, demographic dynamics, economic dynamics, also, education, science, and technological, it's going to be increasingly more important globally. Everybody knows that. And it's amazing to see how China made progress. I've been working with China for many years. As a foreign minister, I was responsible during some years for negotiations of the handover of Macau, a former Portuguese territory, and the Portuguese sovereignty to China. It happened in 99. I was negotiating that until 95, the crucial period. So I think I know a little bit what's happening in China. It's amazing to see how they have been increasing, not only their economic prosperity, but their influence globally. I think we have an interest in uh, having China as a global shareholder feeling the responsibility. Sometimes it's difficult, the dialogue. By the way, the Chinese are extremely tough negotiators. Having said that, I can tell you, for instance, that during the financial crisis, we felt in Europe the support of China, not only rhetorically. They were buying bonds of the countries in crisis. I had a lot of interactions during that time with the Chinese leadership, and they were less nervous than some of our friends in the West that were just trying to see the immediate situation. They had confidence in the euro, and they made, by the way, I think, the right decision. So I think it's important that we engage more with China. All of us, I mean, Europeans and the United States, by the way, I want to say it clearly, I think that the alliance between the United States and Europe, I think, was never more important. I would like my sons and my grandsons to live in a world of freedom. And so Europeans and Americans basically share the same values. And this is important. So having said that, we should, of course, also engage with the parts of the world. And certainly the Europeans are doing it. They are doing it sometimes not always at the same pace. 
not in a complete, coherent, integrated way, but they are doing it. Our countries are present there. I know it was a source of surprise here in the United States. It was still during the Obama administration was when most European countries, including Britain, decided to join that Asian Infrastructure Development Infrastructure Bank. Bank yeah. And Americans were quite, I mean, the American administration was quite surprised. President Obama had said he wanted to make the pivot to Asia. So we have to understand that the Europeans will also like to be present there. So I think it's better to engage than to get out of this new system. Of course, we should do it, hopefully, in a united front and coherent and always being committed to defend our values because this is an important issue. So when you look at the environment today around the world, what are the big threats to peace and security? Besides the global threat of terrorism, namely jihad and the extremism that can strike anywhere in the world. By the way, it's striking most Muslim countries, but also it's striking sometimes our countries. I think we have a very direct threat is this quite strange situation with North Korea trying to defy the world order with a complete irresponsible and illegitimate leader. That is a focus of tension, not only for that region, but for world peace. I'm really concerned with the situation in North Korea and uh, the possible uh, repercussions of uh, conflict in that region. By the way, that's a point I'd like to make. When you compare Europe with Asia, even if in Europe we still have some problems, namely in the zone with uh, close to Russia, the reality is that in Western Europe today, it will say it's almost impossible to think about a war. The Chinese, they always said that we admire you because after the world war, you made the true reconciliation. It's unthinkable today to have wars between the major European powers. That's not the case in Asia. In Asia, in fact, after the world war too. There was not a true reconciliation. And when you see the level of mistrust, not only among the two Koreas, but the main players in the region, it's a very, very difficult situation. So that's why I think Europe, in spite of all its difficulties, has more strategic stability than most people acknowledge. Let's talk a little bit about technology. You've lived both in your time in politics and now in business through a period of amazing technological change. It's had a seismic effect on business, on society, on the way we live our lives, and it's only going to become more pervasive and more powerful. Governments, by and large, kept a pretty hands-off approach to the tech sector. What's the role that various stakeholders should be playing to get the best out of technology and mitigate the risks? I'm, generally speaking, a believer in the progress of science and technology. I'm very happy to live in the 21st century and not before there was antibiotics or before there was anesthesia. <laughs> so uh, I think, by the way, one of the important sectors we are going to see great, great developments is health, with all the inventions now in terms of personal medicine and possibilities that are offered by technology. So basically, I think technology is a very positive development. Of course, I'm very aware of the risks, including economic risks, because there is a risk of having some kind of jobless growth, and it's a matter of concern. So I think the only way to address the issue is not, of course, limiting the possibilities of technology of science. On the contrary, I believe in freedom. But educate people about the proper use of technology and also to have policy and political discussions to, if necessary, regulate some of the uses of technology because there are some ethics issues that can come in some areas. That's a very delicate issue, I understand, but I prefer a world where we have scientific and technological development than a world of obscurantism or of ignorance. Maybe because some of the big technology firms are based in the United States, 
they've been treated as hometown heroes sometimes and not gotten as much skepticism here. There's been a little bit more skepticism of what those firms are up to in Europe. How do you see that playing out over the longer term? I think there has been some structural changes in the market with, the, let's say, development of some of those firms. Europeans like those firms. That's why they are so successful. They use them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they use them. I mean, if not, they will. I mean, you name uh, whatever. I mean, Facebook, I mean, like all over the world. So people like those firms. They use them. The question is that it raises new issues, in fact, in terms of regulation, in terms of taxation. And these issues have to be addressed. I hope they will be addressed in a fair way. But they have also to be addressed. For instance, in terms of competition, I, I remember when I was in the commission, we have issues because if we have a dominant company that controls the market, I mean, that raises an issue. And sometimes there is a possibility of a company being so successful that uh, it becomes at the same time the infrastructure of the market and the provider of the goods in that infrastructure. That is a problem from a competition point of view. So. My experience in the European Commission is that there was not anti-Americanism in the positions taken. I'm speaking now on a complete independent way because the competition authorities in Europe, the European Commission, they act with the same rigor when it's against European companies if they believe they are a violation of the so-called competition rules. So it's a new context we have. We have to address it. But frankly, I believe those companies, they've brought so much innovation that generally we should praise them for their contribution to progress. You've now spent a little bit of time here at Goldman Sachs, but you spent the vast bulk of your career in politics. When you think about the culture you came from, the political government world, and the culture here at Goldman Sachs and in finance, what do you find are some of the most interesting distinctions between those cultures? After 30 years in politics, I've decided for personal and family reasons that I will no longer continue in politics. And I've decided to join Goldman Sachs after being invited to do it because I think it's a real strong organization with a global culture and really a global outreach. And I think it's important, this aspect. And I like international life. I've been also uh, foreign minister before being prime minister. And in the European Commission, during two mandates, I was actively participating in all international conferences. In fact, we were at the origin of the G20 in its current form. So the possibility to continue work in international dimension, but no longer in political office. The biggest difference I see between the corporate finance world and the political world, I would say the first important note to make is that there are two worlds that don't know each other. The level of knowledge in the political actors I've been interacting with about the international finance is really very limited. And I have to say also that in the corporate finance world, for instance, the understanding of the European Union is not uh, very common. Uh, by the way, we can also say that you in the European Union also don't understand very well the European Union because it's a very complex issue. But I would say that is the difference. After all, between the European Commission and Goldman Sachs, for instance, there are things in common. For instance, they are very strong organizations with very competent people with the idea of meritocracy. I think this is something very common. And with a, a global perspective, a cosmopolitan view. And I think there are also many things in common. And yet cultures that don't always understand each other, certainly true in the United States and Europe. So your official title here at Goldman is chairman of Goldman Sachs International. 
what are your primary responsibilities in that position, and what are you most focused on here at the firm? As chairman of Goldman Sachs International, my first responsibility, of course, to share the board of directors and to ensure its coherence, its effectiveness, and also to promote inside the firm a culture of responsibility, integrity, accountability, transparency, to interact with the regulators, namely in the UK. We are not only regulated by the UK authorities, we are also by European Union and also by the American as a subsidiary of Goldman Sachs International. So to deal mostly with issues of compliance, strictly speaking, my first responsibility as chairman, that they are legally prescribed responsibilities. Of course, overall, chairing the board of directors, I try to help achieve all the objectives we have strategically in the firm, both globally and for Goldman Sachs International. And having been in the government, which writes a lot of the rules, looking at it from the perspective of a company that's complying with all the rules and the infrastructure around compliance, any initial thoughts after a year here? In fact, today, there is a lot of attention, more than I was expecting, frankly, to issues of compliance and to issues of regulation to issues of accountability. It's amazing the time, energy that Goldman Sachs devotes to those issues. Probably some people more on the business side will say it's too much. I'm told by people that are in the firm for a long time that there was a change over time. But in fact, I have to say, for me, it is quite a surprise to see how much people at all levels of the firm, both in London, also here in New York, how long they devote the energy the commitment to these issues of compliance, accountability, and integrity, these issues of culture of the firm, broadly speaking. So obviously Goldman Sachs is a very global company, but our main offices tend to be in big cities that oftentimes are more pro-globalization and, and maybe more liberal than the rest of the world, New York City, London, Hong Kong, Singapore. How do you think the firm ought to think of its responsibilities as a citizen in all of the markets where we operate? Or to put it another way, when is it the right time for us to speak out? As I said earlier, it depends on the gravity of the issue, on the seriousness. I think as such, we are not and should not be seen as partisan. It's important for a firm, a global firm, not to take positions on a partisan basis. Having said that, when fundamental values are at stake, for instance, racist attitudes, I think we should say they are against universal values or xenophobia or terrorism. In that case, we have to take a position. Now, of course, the world is not a perfect place. I mean, we have to understand that a firm that is global has to operate in some context that sometimes it's not uh, the context we prefer. As I sometimes say, sometimes we have to interact with people that my mother would not like to see me with, <laughs> because that's the world we are living. Now, the important thing is that even in those circumstances, we keep the highest standards. And I think it is possible to keep the highest standards even in situations or contexts where, unfortunately, those standards are not the rule. Jose Manuel, thank you very much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on September 20th, 2017. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast is not financial research, nor a product of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research. 
Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.